0: Welcome everyone to our very first finance-focused industry insight podcast of 2021. As ever, I am your host, Sack Lane. But you'll be thrilled to know that it's not just me talking to myself today. We are lucky to be joined by Clement Young. Clement is a multi-asset fund manager at Schroders, and this is a somewhat ironic moment I feel, as Clement actually interviewed me just over a year ago for an internship at Schroders, and I got it. So thank you, Clement. Um, I must say it was the friendliest and most candid interview I ever participated in, and I hope to return the favor today. We are going to get some great insight from Clement on all things finance related, and perhaps even grab some general advice as well. So without further ado, how are you doing, Clement? Very well. Thanks for having me, Good. Good to hear. I know it's a busy week for you, as we were just saying before, so I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Would you like to just briefly introduce your role at Schroder's and um, what it's like to run a multi-asset fund? Sure. So as Sucklin mentioned, I am
1: a fund manager on the multi-asset desk uh, at Schroder's. Um, so being a fund manager basically means that you are in charge of a number of mandates, a number of funds, Um and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very exciting, obviously, because you, you get, you get to implement your views, you get to watch markets and how it reacts with the portfolios. Um, but you know, what I think I would say as well, it's not actually for everyone because the, um, the kind of pressures, the commercial pressures, the PNL pressures are, are something that I don't think you quite appreciate until you're in the thick of it. Um, but for me, it's, it's, is it's a really, really exciting job. It's, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better job, really.
0: Okay, awesome. And what does it, in terms of the difference between a multi-asset and like a traditional fund, what would you say is the, the key difference?
1: So if I take an equity fund, for example, um, an equity fund would obviously be just consisting of stocks. Whereas in a multi-asset fund, um, as the name sort of betrays the, uh, the punchline here, but it really is, um, you know, across asset classes, we can, we can do a lot of instruments. Um, you know, we trade equities, we trade bonds, we trade credit, we trade high yield. Um, and as, as a result, it means that you become kind of a jack of all trades. Rather than just a master of one um and you know for some people obviously this 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 isn't this isn't what they want because it, um I think certainly with a lot of people coming in new um people find it quite overbearing because they have to learn so many things and is it really the only um um i say asset class with a slight irony because it's a number of asset classes, but you know you have to think about the relationship between asset classes in when in a multi asset fund. Um, and that's not really something it as highlighted if you compare it to equities and fixed income. And that's what makes it really unique. Um, but you know, personally, I like it. I, I like, I like the breadth. I like the ability to think of a few things, um, at once and, you know, go with a the view there. Um, but again, that's, that's the main differentiator.
0: Interesting. You should say that because I, I, I mean, I've done a bit of time at Shredders obviously over the summer and the traditional teams, so there tends to be a fund manager and then his analysts uh, who give him research. How do you, if you have uh, so many different asset types that you invest in, how do you procure your research? What's your team? What does it look like? So we have a good system in the multi-asset
1: department where we actually, um, we have a re- we have like, um, working groups, if you like, um, and it's split by research. So, for example, I'm part of equities. Um, there is also duration. There is, um, credit. There is, uh, currency. Um, there's alternative risk premium. And what tends to happen is that, uh, you know, you, you'll be part of at least one research group, um, uh, when you join multi-asset. And it means that your group is in charge of doing the deep dive in and certain um, asset classes and highlight to the rest of the group who are not necessarily the experts there and say, Hey, you've got to really watch earnings this, this, this year, because, you know, we are actually really nervous about how optimistic analysts are this year, for example. Um, But that, that's, that's how, how we're roughly split. And, uh, you know, the, the nice thing is, is that you work with um other people, not just within, um, Within London, for example, you, I, you know, my, the equity group uh, consists of. Four continents, I think. Um, so there's Australia, there's, there's, uh, the US, there's London, uh, and then there's obviously Asia as well. And it's, uh, it's hilarious because trying to find a common time for everyone to join the call is absolutely impossible. So unfortunately, our Australian and US colleagues always get the short straw there. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's great in that sense because, you know, you get a real variety of experiences sort of meshing together on a very global basis and it means that your coverage of what you can do for each asset class is also much broader as well um and you know you will have your interests you will have your specialities um but with the help of your colleagues and with the rest of your team as well uh you can kind of band together to form really strong research um and views um as a result um from from uh from your discussions
0: in terms of the mandate of a multi-asset fund you know i spent some time in alternatives and and there, they were trying to kind of replicate the old yield you used to get from, from bonds, really, a kind of stable 5 to 6% with a highly diversified portfolio. Now, what would you say is the target of your fund or multi-asset in general? So I would first take a
1: step back and kind of say that in multi-asset, you have essentially two groups of uh, funds. So one is uh, benchmark relative and one is sort of total return or absolute return in nature. Um, so the, the benchmark relative is, is, is quite self-explanatory in the sense that there is a benchmark and a common benchmark would be something like 60 or 70% equities with the rest of it in bonds. Now, in a benchmark relative, um, context, and this is very akin to what equity fund managers would have where they have to beat an index. Um, you just have to try to outperform the index. So the, the style of running those mandates is, um, is, is quite, it's simple in one sense because you know exactly how much you need to outperform and you know what you need to do to outperform, but it's difficult in the other because uh, you kind of live and die by your views. So if you get, for example, your equity view wrong, uh, there is no portfolio construction to save you, essentially. you will You will feel the market's wrath if you get that view wrong. Whereas the the funds that I'm mainly in charge of are, are essentially total return in nature, and total return basically just means you have a return target with probably some secondary objective as well. So for for me, uh, a very you know one of the flagship funds that I run is essentially a cash plus four uh, percent return target, but the secondary objective is essentially saying I cannot be too correlated with equities, and that's pretty difficult especially when you're kind of saying. How do you achieve that return target in a in a diversified way? And uh to, to now answer your question more directly. The reason why the question about bonds and trying to replicate what bonds can offer is is so debated in these days is because it's it used to be a very um important cog in the sort of let's call it the diversifying bucket of our portfolios. Now, when you have something that's yielding very little uh nowadays and the efficacy of what bonds can do in, in uh, a market correction, this creates a lot of headaches because it means that you can't rely on bonds the same way as you do. You don't have that luxury. You don't have the return buffer. Um So what it means is that you kind of have to cast your net wider. But not only that, you have to look at assets a bit differently. So for example, if I look at something like investment-grade debt, now um, which is obviously credit now credit is traditionally not seen as a safe asset especially when compared to government bonds but what it has is a slight um, spread above government bonds so it's actually offering you something more interesting in terms of the absolute yields that it can offer you but how you use it in the portfolio cannot be the same as how you use government bonds where you kind of say my investment grade debt or my credit will protect me in a market downfall which is you know, folly in my experience. But what it really offers you there is kind of a a, a tighter distribution of returns. So rather than equity sort of shooting the lights out when the markets go up and falling off a cliff when, when you know COVID strikes again. Credits kind of sit somewhere in between. So it's kind of like it has shades of safety in a more benign environment. But during a market correction, it doesn't lose anywhere as close as, or in theory, anywhere as close as um as equities then. Um so you kinda of have to look at these kind of asset classes a bit differently and see how you want to integrate it into a portfolio. I think that's one of the real main challenges as multi-asset investors these days.
0: I see. And so you briefly mentioned COVID there. I assume the last year has been very challenging and perhaps unprecedented for you. Perhaps you've enjoyed it at times. Sometimes it's been a bit, you know, kind of pulling your hair out what's going on. Um, what would you say it's like running a total return fund over the last year compared to a benchmark? Because I assume if, if you look at a benchmark and you remove some of the stocks that you think are obviously going to do badly or weight them, you know, the seasonal stocks, the travel stocks, whatever, but you've You've got something there, which is um, you're kind of spoiled for choice. And I don't know, would you describe that as a good thing? Or does it make decision-making a lot harder when you have so many things to pick from and, you know, one kind of aim that you're going for?
1: So personally, for me, I love the total return side. That's 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 where, that's where why I get the most nerdily excited about things. Um, but essentially, what you're given is a blank canvas, right? And you're saying, you know, and the client is essentially saying, here's a blank canvas. This is what I want go and get it and how you get it really differs um across not just across companies actually across teams across departments across desks even um but that's that's what you know that's what gets me out of bed it's challenging in the sense that it's uh it's been such a weird market that you know you 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 know if i think about the first quarter of last year which which is crazy it's almost a year ago now um It was, uh, not going to lie. It was pretty stressful. And I think for, for a lot of the younger members of the team, myself included, it was the proper correction, a proper correction since a global financial crisis. And a lot of people have, haven't really had that, um, had that experience yet. Um, so, you know, from that perspective was stressful, but you know, I look back and think, other i, I really'm really glad to have had that experience uh, managing money as well during that uh, during that experience and uh, and you know what happened next i don 't think many people could have foreseen where the market just rebounded and you know had an absolute storm of a year um, so as a total return manager, what you really need to be is that you need to be constantly assessing the thesis and making sure that you have the right view. And you are, you know, making sure that you are reflecting that in the portfolio, and uh, that's the uh, given the speed of how uh, how everything has 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 gone in the last year or so, uh, it meant that you had to be a lot more nimble and a lot more flexible. So I think that's where the challenges of a total return manager has been really put to the test because um you know the the kind of speed of what we've seen, how how things have recovered, how things have fallen, is just unprecedented. And going and you kind of have your rule book before the correction and you basically have to kind of say, I understand the rule book, I understand how assets are meant to behave then. And now I'm going to throw it out the window because nothing, none of that's happening right now. Um, and uh, I think, but I think kind of just going that and not being too dogmatic in terms of how you look at things and be very flexible in the way you look at things
0: is, is absolutely crucial. Hmm. And and where did you go? You, I mean, you mentioned you're quite young um... And and you've been a fund manager. I
1: like I like to think so anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> I'm young, not as young as you, Suckling. <laughs> no, no.
0: But certainly, a young fund manager, I'd say. Right, compared to some of the ones that I I met at Schroders who'd been in the game slightly longer. Where did you go then when you were when you were looking for perhaps information or precedent about kind of similar scenarios? What were your source of information, or were you just did you go off your own kind of understanding of what was going on? Were there avenues you took?
1: Did I use an alternative source of information not really, but I think I think what was what was crucial then is that um during my more uh during the years where I was basically an analyst uh, in in various teams and various forms um i I had done a lot of research in terms of you know how assets behave what the rule books as i said before um and why in this case, you know, so, so to me, it was a challenge as to why the rule book or why some of the rule book didn't apply here and what was the difference now versus what I know, but you know what, actually having done those years, um, as an analyst and really going to deep research about things, it really helped me during those difficult months and difficult weeks, actually, because it was so, um, it was so crippling and it was so quick as well. Um, but it really helped me understand it then because you kind of just sort of revert back into your, like um, the, the, the sort of knowledge that you've accumulated as an analyst. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of say, right, I know what I need to do or I know what I should have done, but it doesn't apply anymore because of reasons X. And I think just having that base knowledge as you have in the background and the ability to just reflect, really reflect on your decisions um, properly, um, was was key to me, and it was crucial for me in terms of trying to manage manage this.
0: I see. And if you were to describe your investment style, you know, like if if you were to tell me this is how I go about things, you know, some uh, particularly kind of equity funds, a lot of them are bottom up, but then you go to alternatives mm-hmm. and they have a market view and they're top down and um. I was I was in alternatives and Robert and Darren were there and they were very different actually you know uh, uh, Robert loves to have a big kind of market view and everything mm. like that and Darren's there just trying to kind of clean up whatever Robert's idea is with with all his investment tools and yeah I mean more about how the you know how financial tools can protect your your investment thesis or or you know whatever it happens to be if you were to describe your own way of going about things what would it be. Definitely more strategic. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I would
1: say. And uh, actually, it's a very nice contrast between uh, my my manager and I, because um, my manager, who also co-manages the funds with me, um, he's very tactical and I'm very strategic. So actually, in combination, we we make a very strong team because I'm always thinking, taking the step back and saying, what do our portfolios need to have to deliver the returns that we need to have this year? What do we need to do then? So, is it, you know, if I take a very simple portfolio, is it 40% equities or is it 50% equities or is it 60% equities that we need to have this year, given my view on equities this year? My manager, on the other hand, is saying, okay, uh, equities have fallen by 10%, I'm buying the, sh- I'm buying the whole shed right now. You know, and it's that kind of mentality. But actually, in combination, we 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 really have a good. Uh, I think we have a very good relationship and good impact on the portfolios because you know, uh, essentially he he could be highlighting a lot of things that we're saying that 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 I'm not personally seeing or I don't follow as closely and say we should buy now. You know, the price is too good to ignore, or we should sell now because it is so frothy. Whereas I'm on the other hand saying we are running, we could get all our tactical decisions right this year and we would still not make a return target because we're not running enough risk, for example. You know, and it's that kind of thing. And I love that kind of conversation. I love that, uh, that, that that debate on the desk, really.
0: So it's interesting that you you complement one another in your decision making. Are there times where you disagree? And if you do, you know, how do you come to a consensus within the team?
1: Absolutely. Um, and, uh, by the way, I think as, as a sort of an investment desk or an investment team, it's very important to have people who disagree with you. Um, you know, and, and, uh, actually much of this week, I've been trying to look for research, um, out there. Um, and it's not just by the brokers, by, you know, our competitors to see, to, to challenge the current, I would, what I would think is a consensus, a bullish consensus view for this year because I think it's very important to have the debate always. Um, But how do we come to a consensus? Um, normally what I would say is that there is a very good reason why we have uh why we have opposing views so let 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 me give you an example so you know um for much of this year uh, and this also sort of lends um actually much of last year this kind of lends to us our inclinations as um in terms of our asset classes so i i was very i was saying we buy equities right now because you know it's gone down so much just just buy buy as much as we can and uh, my manager actually had a di- slightly different view in the sense that actually he thinks it's high yield that would buy it, uh, that we should be buying and high yield is basically just very very risky credit um in in this context and because it was just offering such such great use at that time as well and both of us had a point but if you kind of take a step back and you look at it you're like oh actually we have the same view we are saying buy because we need to participate in the markets. But the expression of it is slightly different. And his expression of it is true uh, credit or higher credit and mainstream equities. So how to square that circle is kind of saying, why do we think is it equities now and why is it high yield now? And and actually, once you have that debate, it's very clear that to say, I actually don't disagree with high yield view. I just don't think that that's the most bang for buck. And he will probably say, oh yeah, okay, I can see that. Or he can, he'll say, Clem, equities have done 20% already. You know, I think we should switch to higher And he probably has a point there. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that when, when we have debates or when we have uh, slightly opposing views, there are good reasons why we have that views. And actually, sometimes it's just a, it down to a question of timing and now the question to how we express it the best in the portfolio.
0: I think often... Um recently as well with kind of diversity and that kind of thing, they often say that a good team is one that brings different ideas together and and you have a tighter um, idea or investment thesis if it's been um, contradicted many times and you've kind of thought mm. of it and remoulded it. If we were talking about the last year in general, what would you say is your personal opinion on um, the market in a sense um, in terms of, you know, we've seen a massive values you know down growth is up and up uh if we were to if i was to ask you a particular question like tesla because uh, we here kind of read a lot of research right and and even when i was a the general consensus was it's on a fundamental level quite overvalued but people still are investing in it and and i know you I know mean, i speak to people who had, you know my cousin knows nothing about investing yeah, you know, he's a bit of a gym monkey. He loves that kind of thing. All this friends to the gym, you know, they're just talking about, oh, I just bought a bit of Tesla. You know, I had a bit of money lying around. I bought Tesla. And in my mind, I'm kind of like, well, firstly, I wish I could make decisions just like, oh, I wish I could just buy Tesla. You know, I'm not like that. I like to do my research and I like to understand what's going on. Um, But Tesla seems to have all this momentum, not necessarily backed up by um, very, very strong fundamentals. So if you were to talk about that, what would you say is, is your opinion on it?
1: I think in the context of Tesla, I, I saw a very good chart the other day um, because I, I, w- I would say the market bears would always compare what's happening in, in not just Tesla, but like something like the Nasdaq, which is very tech heavy uh, as being, this is like, you know, the earliest, not even early signs, latest signs of a bubble. Um, and uh, a tech bubble in the in the noughties is, is something that comes to mind right now. But the interesting chart that I saw was Tesla because what they, what they did basically was compare, uh, Tesla to the likes of Microsoft and Cisco, uh, during those, uh, during the sort of late nineties, early 2000 period. And the reason why that's interesting is because these are the companies that actually survived. They are still in existence today and they, they really went up during the market bubble, but they were not as crazy as compared to some of the, I think it was like pets.com, you know, that kind of names in the tech bubble, which is like, who on earth are these people? You know, it's like literally, you know, you and I in the backyard, you know, forming a company on your, on, on our laptop. And, uh, you know, these, these, these companies had no fundamentals at all. The difference here, I guess, is the fact that, uh, you know, tesla is actually producing something they can actually point to something that they, they are producing so that's good but if you kind of take a very crude measure and you take the market value of tesla divided by the number of cars that they produce you're in, in something insane right you know in terms of the market value per car that they produce so from that ma- from that perspective like the fundamentals really doesn't quite jive i would say I, i'm not i'm not sure about that's a support i think that's a very strong statement but it really doesn't quite jive with, with what we're seeing and when you compare to these sort of like the the, the techniques of 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 yore it does look very very overvalued um and uh, i i would say some people um that sort of exuberance or you know i think uh, robert schiller was the one who quoted it that irrational exuberance is something that is quite prevalent when it comes to some um, you know market um, the markets being just irrational these are how bubbles get formed um, so you know from that perspective i think you have to be very cautious now i i have my view is slightly more nuanced than that in the sense that i think the market as a whole is getting a little bit frothy but i think there are still pockets of the market that we can buy and we can still do pretty well. So one of the biggest calls that I made um towards the end of last year was to buy small caps in the US. And small caps at that time were so unloved. They were really, really unloved. Um, and definitely compared to the likes of the S P and when you come into Nasdaq, it was just it was just insane how un how of a how much of a laggard that was. And fast forward to now is one of our best performing trades. I'm, you know, very happy to very happy to report on <laughs> I'm very, I, 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 you, you will find that you know fund managers are all very biased. They only report the ones that, all <laughs> the trades that have done well. You know, they would never report the trades that have lost a lot of money. Um, but you know, but in in all seriousness, what I think that what what I'm trying to reflect here is that there are still pockets of the market that are interesting. The markets as a whole might be challenged because of this frothiness and this sort of irrationality, but there are still pockets. And, you know, maybe value names are are, are becoming more interesting now with uh, bond yields starting to eat higher, um, a belated democratic sweep in the U.S. administration. All these are very important ingredients, I would say, uh, for this market to continue a bit longer but i don't think it'd be the shade of what we saw last year where it was really the tech names and the growthy names that were driving markets
0: so is timing the uh, renormalization of the world of the world in general as in is trying to um anticipate when covid will stop going up or come down or whatever be quite crucial to the timing of how you view the markets to behave as well I think
1: timing in general is bloody difficult, if I can put it plainly. Um and I will I will never admit to saying I have skill in timing because I, I think I you know, I, I think at best I have it fifty fifty, you know, and that's to put it in perspective. What I would say is that your your view should always take into account the risks that um that you that are prevalence in the market, and I think just being aware of what kind of risks that you're running in the portfolio and risk that you're running in your view uh is is crucial so if i if I take a look at the markets, for example, what are the markets pricing in this year? It is a recovery it is a recovery in every market basically, no matter where you look you try, i mean even Europe and the u k and you know, both of these markets have been much maligned for a very long period of time and um to me, that highlights the fact that you know it can take, it growth can take a big hit if this recovery stalls and how does this recovery stall is probably by COVID. Do I know when the, you know, the new variant will, will start crippling the world? No bloody idea. And, you know, I would say a lot of health um, organizations probably don't, don't have a you know, better clue on that either, mm-hmm. but I think it's important to acknowledge that and to, to have that sort of roadmap in your mind that, if growth comes to a stall, what should you do? Actually, what I think, you know, markets, um, including myself are more worried about is what the, uh, what central banks will do this year, especially the Federal Reserve. Because, you know, if you think about why growth names and why tech names have done so well, it's because youth and interest rates have been so low. So, you know, the cost of that is just yeah, really de minimis. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's been, what what I would call liquidity field party, and the thing about liquidity is one of those things where once you stop the music, it 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 kind of shines the, the a light on the market that's really unflattering, and that's when the markets will start to panic. And so what I I'm personally watching are the level of bond yields, and actually it's not just the level of bond yields, but the speed of what bond yields are doing. So if bond yields move by I don't know uh, half a percent tomorrow. I'm I'm out like this is it like I I I don't I don't mind if I get that view wrong for a couple of weeks or even a couple of months but that scares me a lot because that is definitely not my base case um and I think the market has moved a heck of a long way to price that in
0: and so government stimulus and and pouring money into the economy has been going on throughout covid in places like the UK and the US Um, what do you think will be the outcome of all of, as you said, all of this liquidity and all of this kind of money that's been going around? I I don't think some people have anticipated quite how much stimulus has been coming in without necessarily anything to back it up on the fundamental level.
1: So what I would say is that the stimulus or the unprecedented amount of stimulus that you've seen worldwide um, has been needed. I think that's the first thing that I would say. The demand shock, from covid is, is is something else it's on another scale um and actually so much money had to be poured in especially in the uk uh to even just make sure that the the, the economy can trudge on for a bit longer um so that stimulus has been very much needed the consequences of the stimulus is something that the, the i i don't think many people are thinking about right now uh, and that's consequences that we have to think about in the future. I think that's more of a 2022 story, uh, rather than a 2021 story. Uh, but essentially when you think about it, you've got high amount of debt that you need to pay off. Um, and, uh, you know, something has to give and. Dare I say it, at that time, you know, inflation might become a big problem there because of how much debt we're running in the economy. Um, and it also puts central bank in central banks in an even more difficult position because, you know, the amount of debt that is out there is frankly scary. If you're a classical economist, you'd be, you'd be having heart palpitations just looking at the amount of debt that's out there right now. So, you know, when, when inflation rears its ugly head, um, maybe next year, what do you do as a central bank? Do you hike interest rates? Because in theory, the book says that you should. But the amount of debt out there as well means that you have to be super careful. And if the economy is still very much leveraged to uh, the amount of uh, easy debt that's available, that can cause some real domino effects in the economy. So I I think that's a 2022 story. Um, and uh, as investors, I think at this point of time given given how uh, compressed the market cycle has been, one year seems like an eternity
0: i can imagine I can imagine it 's been quite an accelerated learning curve as well are there any Is there anything you 've picked up on during the last year that you have kind of adapted into the way you go about investing because of having to kind of constantly be on your feet and Things you've maybe relationships you've seen in the market that you weren't necessarily aware of before, or how certain financial uh, investment tools have reacted, and you're like, well, I didn't quite notice that before. Mm. How that's in my own kit bag that I might use in the future.
1: I think for me personally, it has made me made me a lot more aware of the levels that I go in and out of a, a certain trade. If something is not working, like don't hang on for too long. This is definitely not the market for it. Um and um I've you know unfortunately i have had to learn that a few few times the hard way, um uh, where I've held onto a position just slightly longer than I should have. Um and that's why I would say sort of I'm I'm not a technical guys where basically I'm I'm what do they call them, chartists and things like that. I, I'm not personally a guy like that. But having said that, it is very, very useful when you're trying to set levels. Because, you know, especially when it comes to, um, things like the current currencies and bonds and things like that, the markets are quite technical there. So you need to have a good grasp of, uh, what levels you're going in and going out and, you know, what sort of profit and stop loss targets that you have in the portfolio. So that's definitely taught me a lot more there to be a lot more cognizant of that. I think relationships wise is, is weird, isn't it? Because, you know, you kind of always think of, you know, it's a bit boring. Actually, I'm a bit bored of this conversation because I always look at bonds in that sense. You know that, you know, why isn't it moving? You know, and in 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 either way, you know, when when the markets are grinding or grinding, accelerating higher bond use basically for most of last year just stayed where they are it was spooky it was just that like the equity is. it looked like the equity markets knew something that the bond markets didn't or the other way around um and uh to me that relationship was just weird because you know i i've been so used to sort of seeing if the markets go up i don't know five percent um over the uh, over the week bond use normally goes up by 2025 basis point rule of thumb and you know bond yields actually sometimes fell you know when markets markets rate and it was just like what is going on and um and when but you think about how much debt that's out there and like you know how 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 much sort of um monetary stimulus is in the economy and things like that then it kind of goes to no surprise but you know to me that relationship just essentially just broke down
0: yeah i mean (laughs) i keep saying it it is a very challenging role and it seems to be very demanding and in an analytical way and also in a personal way when when you make these investments you know these decisions you make with conviction and and the outcome can obviously make you can you make you feel good or bad um but i wanted to ask you know recently well not recently but in 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 terms of investment in the last 10 years or so with uh with uh passive investing kind of coming to the forefront how have you found Asset management reacting to it. I know Schroeder's is, um, active only, right? So, um, I know that that's something that they have high conviction in. So how have you found justifying, you know, cause a lot of reports and not to be, to be candid here, you know, a lot of reports say that, you know, active fund managers don't actually on the whole, you know, add any benefit to a, a fund and you should just buy some ETFs and get on with your life. Yeah. Um, how have you found that? From your perspective, being inside the industry.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you, you will notice very well, Saki, when you joined the company that, you know, the, the party line is that, yeah, active management is the best. And, and, and that's the only way to go. But, you know, look, as, as a multi asset manager, I have a lot of passive instruments in my, my portfolio. Most of it is still actively managed, which is great. And I, 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 by the way, I strongly believe in that. I'll explain to you why, but at the same time, you cannot rule out the use of passive instruments, especially as a multi-asset fund manager. Um, so, you know, it's, it is, a great uh, invention for the market in that sense. Um, you know, I one one of my personal sort of in, um, investment slash finance idols is uh, Jack Bogle, who the late founder of Vanguard, who you know many people basically attribute him to be one of the 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 first first people to give ETFs a proper crack. And you know, one of the things that he I was very lucky a couple of years back I, I actually went to a talk. Um, that he was hosting and he said that when he was creating the the ETF for Vanguard what he was trying to say then is that look pensioners in the US they don't need the 1% alpha they need the 12% beta that the the US the S&P 500 was offering and that struck such a chord with me because I was like, you know what? That's absolutely right. Because actually it's about the, what, take a, take a, take a step back. What's the big picture that we want to capture here? And in terms of capturing broad market movements, passive instruments are fantastic. Now. Where I where I would go back into sort of my active management spiel, and this is why a lot of the portfolio uh, that I have are still majority um, actively managed, is because I think there are definitely certain environments where active management is so freaking crucial. Um, so during, for example, during the correction and during the difficult uh, times of last month. Um, actually, a lot of the ETFs that we were seeing out there were actually really being destroyed because they had certain things in the, India their, in their uh, in the indices that, you know, obviously are not being tracked actively. Um, but our active managers were already out. You know, they were like, no, we, we, we felt really uncomfortable. So we, so we took it out. And actually in an environment like this where there are a lot of cool things happening in the market because markets are recovering, uh, there are a lot of interesting opportunities, maybe values even coming back. That to me, that is a really good environment for active management because it gives you the ability to go into the market, pick stocks that you're like, this is it, this this can be it, and actually really do well. So, you know, I I come back to my small cap trade then you know i i would expect like you know an equity manager especially you know let's say he was in the based in the u.s and he could pick from the large and small caps i would expect him to you know even do even better than small caps which is a big hurdle by the way um but it's it's uh it kind of goes to show that that flexibility that ability to just pick up some really interesting ideas you can't really do that in a passive way passive way is skill right you you have a Big amount of assets in there, and you want to invest it, great ETFs of uh, ETFs are fantastic, futures are fantastic for that, um but um it just doesn't have that 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 little edge that active management can
0: offer you right now. You know, when I was at Schroders, someone told me that you know if you just if you gave s- someone some money to manage, you know they'd get it wrong fifty percent of the time and they'd get it right fifty percent mm-hmm. of the time. And you give an asset manager, you know, someone with a CFA, somebody to manage, they're actually also going to get it wrong 50% of the time and right 50% of the time. But the point is, when they get it right, they get it right big. And when they get it wrong, hopefully it's it's not so big. Otherwise, I guess they don't have a job anymore. So I guess over time anyway, um, only the good asset managers are left. And
1: Exactly. And I think I think that's, that's a really important point because I think a lot of people sort of think that you need to have a majority of your calls right the The truth of the matter is, and like you know, by the way, we are very, very, very lucky in Trotus, especially in the multi asset desk, to be, um, uh, to to have a lot of very, very talented people and very, uh, you know, clever people, you know, great track records as investors and things like that. And their views, you know, if I sort of take a very brutal way of looking at it, is more or less fifty fifty, and I think fifty fifty is pretty decent to be honest. But as you say, it's about what do you do when you're 50% right? And what do you do when you're 50% wrong? And uh, this kind of strikes a very important part of my core philosophy because I, I think it's about how you construct a portfolio. You know, To me, that is key. You could get your calls 60 70% right at the time. If your portfolio is not running uh, the, the, the correct level of risk or the correct level of def- uh, hedges on the other side, your portfolio will probably lose money. And that's and, and to me that is a crazy concept because imagine you get your calls right most of the time and you're still losing money how's that possible but you know it really goes down to that And I think this is a um, a part that I um, I would say a lot of people um, you know probably younger maybe younger people they they don't quite have that appreciation of how important that is you know?
0: does that does that change the the way you construct your portfolio or not necessarily construct it but the outcomes you have obviously your your total return but if you're talking about the risk you have you know, are willing to take over a certain period your clients often come to you when they're distressed about what's going on and um how what's that kind of communication channel like you know you kind of you want to do your job really well and you want to make sure um you know but maybe perhaps the client doesn't necessarily know what's best for them and they see what's out there in the market and they get you know uh they panic slightly so how do you deal with that
1: uh fun <laughs> um you know um you know like look to 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 be honest like it's it's Definitely a learning, another learning curve for me last year was, um, it's, it's not just about PNL P&R pressure. Actually, it's, it's funny because I always thought that PNL P&R pressure would be something that I would struggle with. But it was the commercial pressures that, you know, were really, really difficult and, you know, outflows and, and things like that. It is really not fun. And it's very difficult. I, I will say now, it, it's very difficult not to take things personally, especially when you're the lead fund manager of a certain fund or mandate and they say, nope, Clem, we're out. And, and it's, it's very, very hard. It, because you're, you're, you're kind of showing them that, look, I'm doing absolutely the best I can for you. And I'm very confident that I can recover my losses and even generate your positive return by the end of the year. And, you know, glad to say that for essentially almost all our accounts, that's what happened. Even the ones who had a terrible, uh, drawdown. Um, but. Sometimes uh, clients are not patient enough. And, uh, you know, and what I would say is that, you know, when you're communicating to an existing client, you have to understand that you are managing their money. It's very different managing your money, your own money. If you want to put it 100% in Tesla, do it you're not. You're never going to do that for a client because that is not in their best interest. And um, how I always think about it is that, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the money that we run are institutional. So what this means are, you know, it's mainly consisting of pension funds, central banks, uh, sovereign wealth funds, and so forth and so forth. If I think that if I take a pension fund, for example, yes, there'll be a board of trustees that are giving me this money to manage. At the end of the day, it's, you know, tackling is your parents, my parents, tension that we're managing and if you have that sense of responsibility you will understand why the trustees are getting more and more worried so you have to really be quite empathetic in that sense when you when you speak to them now when you lose a client what do you do and uh you know and you, especially given the fact that you know look you you've, you've done everything you can you you know that you've you are you are confident you can you can uh you can recover and do everything right and they still say I've lost confidence in you. They don't say that. They're very nice about it. But essentially, whats what they're saying, right? They've lost confidence in your process and lost confidence in your views. I'm out. What do you have to do then to sort of like pick yourself up? And what I personally do is say, okay, you know what? My mentality has to be, I have to come to you in a year or two years time for whatever and show you, you kind of made a mistake in uh, in, in withdrawing them. And whether they invest back then in two years time um is kind of almost irrelevant but that's the attitude that you need to have because and to me that's the that's the best way to deal with the commercial pressures of the
0: job if i was to describe your job it'd definitely be a high performance job or one based on high performance what are some of the things perhaps you know in in life in general which you you bring in or you you incorporate into your life to make sure that High performance remains there, but also you don't feel those losses too personally and you're able to continue to perform. Is there anything you do, you know, recreationally or just in the way you reflect mm. about the work you do that helps you? I would
1: say that you need to have an amazing base of friends and family. Um, that's, that's that's really, really quite crucial. Um, and the reason why I say that is because these guys, um, and, you know, when I say Amazing friends. These are the friends who will tell you you're wrong. These are the friends who will call you out when you, uh, when you're over your head. These are the friends who, who, who gives you a little, little slap on the back when say, Hey, you know, cheer up. It's not the end of the world. You still have a job. You know, and, um, a lot of my friends, a lot of my, 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 my family, my wife, they all do different things. I'm, I'm almost like the black sheep of the family, you know, being, being investment, uh, which is ironic, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a funny world. But the great thing about that is that, um, you have that sense of humility in, in life. And so you will always want to do better, which always helps. But when the, when, when the chips are down, you know, it's about saying, Hey, pick yourself up. You, you don't, you know, you don't have that much time in markets, by the way. M- you, you may be moping, but markets are moving on. But, you know, so that's, that's, that's what I'll highlight. But these are the people who would say you can do better. Pick yourself up. And so that's, that's what I do. Um, recreate, recreationally, I, you know, I cook. I do a lot of cooking. So I'm, I'm the cook of the house. So I would, you know, cook a storm basically if, I, if i'm in the middle of thinking or something like that and actually that sent that that space to think about things and to just reflect because during the day you really sometimes don't have time to think and it's it's crazy because it's uh there's so many things going on um you have you, know, you have to do presentations you know you have to set up trades you know you have to come up with your investment views and by the end of the day it's 5 p.m and you're like well, I should start get started on my work then, right? You know, is is that kind of life? Uh, so that quiet time to really think and reflect is really important. So I would say, from that perspective, do something that gives you that space and time to to think about things.
0: You mentioned cooking. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of cooking. I think there's a certain joy when other people enjoy your food that you get, and absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And, and I tend to do things personally. If I'm doing something really difficult, I like to actually start my day. With something really difficult that makes me feel capable so for me that's exercise for other people it may, might be something else right but if I I feel like if I start my day with probably the hardest thing I could do right as soon as I wake up then the rest of the day I think I can do all the other difficult things that I'm about to come across so that's so, a you know exercise or you know Clem likes to cook and and share that so would you describe your work-life balance as you know well naturally you're still doing your job so you think it's enough for you but on the whole how would you describe it?
1: I, th- I think on the whole is very good. What I would say is that as uh, as a fund manager, you know, as I as I alluded to earlier, the markets don't stop. You know, you 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 are done by six seven pm. U.S. markets are still open, and then by the way, once the U.S. markets close, Asia opens. You know, it doesn't stop. It really doesn't stop. So um you can always do more. That's what I would say. And I know a lot of people will say that with regards to their job. Um, where they say yeah you 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 can never finish your work and I would say that 's true, but there is an, uh, i think there 's a higher sense of truth than this because really it doesn 't stop. You can take a holiday for two weeks and the markets are still open. They're not closed for two weeks. Um, so, you know, even on holidays, I will be in, you know, I'll be what's, what's happening. My manager saying, okay, can you, can you sell this on the portfolios and things like that? And that's something you just have to keep and keep a finger on. But I think overall, I think the, the, the work life balance is, is really good. Um, you know, I've I've worked in different teams in Schroders, so I wasn't always a multi-asset. And uh, every team that I've worked on um, has always had a very good. Uh, they always always emphasise good work-life balance, which I'm very appreciative of. Um, I think that's a great culture to have as a company as well.
0: You know what what is it about your job? You mentioned institutional clients, pension funds. Whenever I think about going into asset management. I always think about the bigger picture. I'm that kind of person, you know, I have too much, I'm a bit lonely, so I have too much time to think about things. What is it about asset management that would make me feel like my job is meaningful? Because yes, I love to problem solve. And yes, I, like, I love to do something which is demanding and there are indicators of whether I've done it correctly or not correctly, which is, you know, is reflected in the subject. I do physics, Clem, you did maths, you know, kind of similar ways of thinking. But at the same time, um, what is it for you that makes the job meaningful if we were to end on something what is it for you that makes you feel like you want to continue to do asset asset management and be a fund manager and what is it that makes you feel good about the work you do
1: so the first thing i would say is that the thing that really attracted me to asset management in the first place was the ability to take a problem have a good thing and then have a crack at trying to solve it i think that was the broad picture that was what attracted me to the industry what I would say in terms of adding value um, to at the end of the day in the asset management industry, and you know it's it's a funny one because I think when people think of investment, think of finance, they don't think of value add they don't especially from a society perspective but I will parrot it back definitely to the example that I gave about you know your parents my parents in terms of their pensions you know um, and if I think of my parents, for example, and my family most of my family, as i said they they're not numbers people let's put it this way you know my sister was in healthcare my uh my mum was a lecturer my sister's a lecturer you know and it's it's one of those things where they are amazing at what they do and i want to support that i want to do my little to support how amazing you are and retiring with enough money and saving for a rainy day and things like that that cannot be underestimated and the ability that that sort of almost financial freedom to have that have that um at the end of your very long work life if you think about it you know you're working for most of your life um is is something that a lot of people don't think about and unfortunately i hear about a lot of people who are you know drawing already are drawing on their pension if they can when they're in their 40s or 50s because they just don't have enough money um and to be honest you it's very easy for the, uh, people outside to just point a finger and say you didn't save enough but how do you do that when people are not really we don't really have that financial knowledge or education so in my little way in my little way you know uh, people who invest in my fund i want them to have that security i want them to have that 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 ability to say i've got money parked somewhere and i know that you know it will hopefully grow to a certain amount this time, and I can withdraw it, and I can actually live my life or I can use it for my 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 son's college, for example, something along those lines and I think that has to be the attitude when you manage somebody's money, and that to me is value add
0: well, I think that is a pertinent and important point to end on. Clem, can I say a massive massive thank you? I hope. You know, this was half as enjoyable as my interview was some time ago now. And uh, I haven't taken up too much time from your day. Like I said, this time of year is very busy for you, while your life in general is very busy. Um, but thank you very much for all the insight you've provided.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure. And, and for the record, you were amazing in your interview. <laughs> well, I, um, I, 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 feel, I actually feel a bit nervous trying to compare my interview with your interview. So, but thank you for, for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Just a quick note from me, guys, if you are also looking to get started with some investment, uh, we have a great opportunity for you here at Finance Focus. DeJiro is our partner providing you with empowering financial freedom through their online stock brokerage platform. They allow you to trade from investment tools such as stocks and options, the whole range, and they've won a number of awards such as the Investor's Choice and Financial Times Best Low-Cost Stock Broker 2018 and 2017. Find out more on our website and in our bio. And I'll catch you guys next time for our market update.